Audio Podcast Network. Welcome to the true crime podcast you can binge on your lunch break. My name is Joy. I am a school librarian, obsessive researcher, and lifelong true crime nerd. Each week, I'll be bringing you a new case to dissect. We'll focus on the facts, giving exposure to some of the lesser-known stories in the true crime world. You never know what you might learn. This is Bite Size Crime. Welcome back to Bite Size Crime. While researching last week's episode on the disappearance of Philoma and Milena Luke, another story caught my eye. It's a case that took place just miles from where the Luke sisters vanished, one that investigators originally thought may have been connected in some way. This episode discusses sensitive topics and contains graphic descriptions of violence. Listener discretion is advised. Emerita Relata Romero, known as Emmy to her family and friends, lived on the island of Saipan, part of the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands. Originally from the Philippines, Emmy was the third of eight children in a close-knit family. As a teenager, Emmy moved to Saipan to live with her brother, and she ended up staying there for the next two decades. Emmy had a very full life on Saipan. She had a close group of friends and loved spending time with her family. Eventually, Emmy married a Filipino man and had two daughters, Erica and Francine. At some point, Emmy's husband and children moved back to the Philippines, but Emmy stayed on Saipan, working various jobs and sending money back to her family, supporting her children as well as her elderly mother. It was difficult for Emmy to be away from her children, but she kept in regular contact with them via phone calls and chat messages. In 2012, 37-year-old Emmy was living in an apartment in the village of Garapan with her brother Eduardo and her sister Estrellita. Although the siblings had busy work schedules, they made sure to spend time with each other as often as possible, carving out time to partake in their favorite activity, karaoke. The siblings were very close, and they looked out for each other. On the evening of February 4, 2012, Emmy headed to Godfather's Bar, where she worked as a bartender. It was a typical shift for Emmy, nothing out of the ordinary. After the last patrons left around 1 a.m., Emmy and her co-workers closed the bar down, cleaning and preparing for the next day. By the time they left, it was nearly 3 in the morning. Emmy and her three co-workers decided to share a taxi cab home, since they all lived fairly close to each other. They called a local taxi company, and their ride pulled up in front of the bar at 2.43 a.m., Natalie Ocone, the godfather's cook, was dropped off first, followed by Emmy and then the other two passengers. But when Natalie got home, she realized that she and Emmy had accidentally swapped bags. She called Emmy and asked her to meet up so they could swap back, but Emmy said she was tired and asked if they could just do it tomorrow. But Natalie insisted, so Emmy reluctantly agreed to meet her outside. As Natalie walked down Chicharica Avenue, she saw Emmy coming towards her. She noticed that Emmy was still wearing the gray tank top and black shorts from earlier, and she seemed to be in a hurry. Natalie then saw a greenish-blue sedan with tinted windows pull up alongside the road, and Emmy told the driver to wait a minute. Natalie asked her what the rush was, and Emmy said she had decided to go visit her boyfriend Taj on the southern tip of the island, and she had called another taxi to come pick her up. Natalie thought it was an odd choice at 3 a.m., but the women exchanged bags and then said goodbye. Emmy then got into the passenger seat of the sedan and drove off. Natalie returned home and went to bed. About 12 hours later, Natalie texted Emmy to see if she wanted to walk to work together. 
Emmy never responded, so Natalie figured she would just meet her at the bar later. However, when she arrived at Godfather's, Emmy wasn't there. By 5 p.m., Emmy's co-workers were getting worried. She was always on time and would have called someone if she was running late. Scott Dottino, the co-owner of the bar, called around to other staff members to ask if anyone had seen Emmy or if she had asked someone to cover her shift. But no one knew where she was. Scott even went to Emmy's apartment to see if she was there, but her brother Eduardo said he hadn't seen her, and he didn't remember her coming into the apartment after work that morning. It was clear that something had happened to Emmy, but no one knew what. Scott and Eduardo called the Department of Public Safety and reported her missing. Immediately, Emmy's name and picture were being broadcast on local news stations, asking if anyone had seen Emmy or the green sedan she had last been seen entering. Based on Natalie's statements about Emmy's actions early that morning, officials called in the FBI for assistance, suspecting that this may have been a kidnapping. In a statement to the press, authorities revealed that shortly after 3 a.m. on February 5th, 911 dispatchers received a call they believe was made from Emmy's cell phone. A woman's frantic voice was heard saying, Mariana's resort, before the call was cut off. But other than that, authorities were remaining tight-lipped about their investigation. For two days, Emmy's family and friends agonized over her disappearance, desperate for answers. They conducted their own searches and begged the public for help. Scott Dottino spoke with local reporters saying, quote, Please help us in any way. We are all family here. We need everybody's help. We're begging everybody to help us with this search. On February 7th, a group of volunteers made up of Emmy's family, friends, and co-workers met at Godfather's Bar to conduct another search. Joined by federal agents and local police officers, the volunteers broke into small groups and headed in different directions to search. For several hours, they combed the island, determined to leave no stone unturned. Around 3 p.m., two federal agents searching the northern part of the island decided to investigate the old La Fiesta Mall in San Roque. The abandoned shopping center had closed in 2004 and was now overgrown with foliage and covered in trash and graffiti. But Emmy's cell phone had pinged on a tower nearby the morning she disappeared, so the agents decided to take a look. Not long into their search, they discovered footprints and what looked like drag marks leading down a corridor toward the bathrooms. There, they discovered the body of a woman. Next to her lay a purse containing multiple items, including keys, a cell phone battery, and a paycheck from Godfather's Bar. Word that a body had been found quickly spread among the volunteers. When Scott heard what had happened, he immediately called Eduardo and broke the news to him. Eduardo and Estrellita rushed to the La Fiesta Mall, but authorities would not allow them to see the body, most likely to protect them from what was surely a disturbing scene. However, Eduardo was the one to identify the body at the morgue that evening, later telling reporters that he knew it was his sister when he saw the silver bracelet on her ankle. He would not go into further details about the state of her body, though, only stating that he believed for sure that Emmy had been murdered. Emmy's family and friends gathered together that night to light candles and pray. Godfather's bar closed early so her co-workers could join, and everyone shared tears and memories of the beautiful, kind-hearted woman they had known and loved. In the days and weeks after Emmy was found, her family waited desperately for answers. Authorities would not reveal details about their investigation, and the autopsy results were sealed. 
Eduardo and Estrellita also had to wait for Emmy's body to be released to them so they could bring her remains to the Philippines. Finally, on February 18th, Emmy's family was able to take her home. After a public mass at the Cristo Rai Church, Eduardo and Estrellita boarded a flight to Manila with Emmy's remains. Eduardo thanked everyone for their support. Quote, What happened to my sister Emmy was really tragic and heartbreaking for all of us who loved and cared for her. We are still hopeful and praying that justice will prevail. But the wheels of justice turned slowly, and Emmy's family continued to wait for answers. Investigators explored various leads and interviewed multiple people they believed could have been involved. Federal agents spoke with Emmy's boyfriend, Taj Van Buren, who Emmy had supposedly been going to visit on the morning of February 5th. Ultimately, they determined that Emmy never made it to Taj's house, and he was ruled out as a suspect. Investigators also tried to track down the green sedan that Natalie had seen Emmy get into, and they pulled surveillance video from local businesses in the area where the car had picked her up. There was even speculation that Emmy's murder was connected to the assault of another woman on the island. On January 29th, the woman was awakened in the middle of the night by a strange man in her bedroom. He sexually assaulted her at knife point, then attempted to kidnap her and force her into his vehicle, an older model gold sedan, but she managed to escape. Her apartment was located just a few blocks away from Godfather's Bar. Authorities searched for the vehicle and the suspect, but he was never found, and they weren't able to officially connect the two cases. On February 25th, the Department of Public Safety announced that they had identified a person of interest in Emmy's case. According to statements made by Commissioner Ramon Mafnis, authorities didn't believe that Emmy knew this person, but they did think they were still on the island, and that investigators would continue following their movements and gathering evidence to build a strong case. With this news, Emmy's family had renewed hope, but as the months passed and no arrest was made, they began to wonder if they would ever see justice. Finally, in February of 2013, one year after Emmy was murdered, authorities announced that they had arrested Joseph Acosta Chrysostomo and charged him with first-degree murder, kidnapping, sexual assault, and robbery. Immediately, everyone wanted to know who this man was and how he was connected to Emmy. It turned out that Joseph Chrysostomo had a long, violent history, and investigators had suspected him from the beginning. Chrysostomo had been in and out of jail for years. In 2000, he assaulted a police officer at a routine traffic stop. In 2003, he was arrested for robbing tourists. In 2006, he hit a child with his car, then threatened to kill the entire family. And it didn't stop there. Between 1996 and 2012, he was charged in at least 10 separate cases for crimes such as burglary, criminal mischief, assault with a dangerous weapon, possession of a controlled substance, and conspiracy. In fact, he was released from prison in December of 2011, placed on probation, then caught again with methamphetamines in January of 2012. However, he wasn't arrested until February 14th. During that short few weeks of freedom, investigators believed that Chrysostomo murdered Emmy. Investigators also believed that Chrysostomo was possibly involved in several other murders in the area. In 1995, Xiao Ming Ho and Yu Hua Wang, a couple who owned a store in the village of Dandan, were kidnapped and murdered. In 2006, the body of Bao Ying Chen was found on Lao Lao Beach, and her death was determined to be the result of asphyxiation by drowning. 
The circumstances in these murders were strikingly similar to Emmy's story. In particular, Bao Ying Chen got into a vehicle that she thought was a taxi, much like investigators believe Emmy did. But despite the similarities, authorities could never officially connect Chrysostomo to those murders. However, they could connect him to Emmy, and in January of 2014, his murder trial began. During the four-month trial, prosecutors laid out the timeline of Emmy's last moments, presenting all the evidence that authorities had kept private during the investigation. On the morning of February 5, 2012, after she had been dropped off at her apartment, Emmy placed a call to a taxi service, requesting that a particular taxi driver, a Mr. Kim, pick her up near Garapan Market. Emmy had used this driver's services before, and she trusted him. When Emmy went out to swap bags with Natalie, she must have assumed that the green sedan that pulled up was driven by Mr. Kim. Natalie had said that Emmy appeared to be in a rush, and she may not have noticed who the driver really was in the dark. However, once she got in the car, Emmy realized her mistake. She immediately called Mr. Kim and told him that she had gotten into the wrong car and asked him if he could pick her up. Mr. Kim testified that Emmy sounded shocked. Then he heard Emmy and a man shouting before the call disconnected. Mr. Kim knew something was wrong. He drove to Taj Van Buren's house, where he often took Emmy, and told him what was going on. The two men tried calling and texting Emmy's cell phone repeatedly, but there was no response. At 3.02 a.m., the Department of Public Safety received a call to 911. The dispatcher heard a woman crying, telling someone that her neck hurt and begging him to let her go. A male voice in the background told her he would take her home and asked her name, to which she responded, Emmy. The woman again pleaded for help before saying that she was at Mariana's resort. Then the call ended. The dispatcher immediately sent officers to the area where she believed the call had come from, but they were unable to find Emmy. After Emmy was officially reported missing that evening, investigators interviewed multiple people, including her boyfriend Taj, one of her neighbors, and a man who frequently hung out alone at Godfather's Bar. But each of them were eventually cleared. When Emmy's body was found on February 7th, investigators could then gather evidence from the crime scene and from Emmy herself. Emmy's autopsy revealed that she had valiantly fought against her attacker. Bruises covered her arms and legs, and there was significant pre-mortem hemorrhaging. When her body was found, all her clothes were intact, but the medical examiner said he could not rule out a sexual assault. A black pair of leggings were tied tightly around Emmy's neck, causing asphyxiation that ultimately resulted in her death. Near Emmy's body, investigators found her purse, which held many of her personal items. However, her cell phone, a BlackBerry torch, was missing. Only the battery had been left behind. Considering that Emmy had made multiple calls from her cell phone after being abducted, investigators suspected that her killer had removed the battery to stop the phone from pinging local towers, then had disposed of the phone. The federal agents who discovered Emmy's body had seen footprints and drag marks at the scene. What made the prints unique is not that they were made by shoes, but by someone's bare feet. Crime scene investigators made gel molds of five footprints, which were then sent to the FBI lab for analysis. Now they just needed a suspect to match them to. On February 8th, they got a major break in the case. A woman named Joanne Castro called the Department of Public Safety and said that she had seen her ex-partner driving a car that matched the description broadcast on the news. 
Her ex was someone well-known to police, Joseph Chrysostomo. Based on this tip, investigators reached out to local rental companies to see if Joseph Chrysostomo showed up on any of their records. What they found was that Joseph's sister Annie had rented a turquoise sedan from Islander Rent-A-Car on February 3rd, and she was scheduled to keep it through February 8th. However, at 9.30 a.m. on February 5th, she returned the vehicle to the rental agency and asked for a different one, claiming that she needed one with tinted windows. Employees found the request strange, since the original car did have tinted windows, but they honored her request and exchanged the car for a similar model. Investigators began to interview friends of Joseph Chrysostomo, hoping to create a definitive timeline of his movements. According to a woman named Alice, she had been with Chrysostomo on the night of February 4th, playing poker at a local bar in Garapan. At some point, Chrysostomo had asked Alice to borrow her cell phone since he didn't have one of his own. He then left the bar with her phone, and Alice didn't hear from him until 6 a.m. on February 5th when he called her at home to ask her to pick up his sister from the bar because he was busy. Investigators began to suspect that he had been busy disposing of Emmy's body. Their suspicions were bolstered by cell phone records that showed Chrysostomo's call to Alice pinging off a tower right across from La Fiesta Mall. On February 14th, investigators finally got the chance to speak with Joseph Chrysostomo in person. He confirmed that he had driven Annie's rental car on February 4th, and he said he knew that Annie had taken it back to the rental company on the 5th, but he claimed that he didn't know why. He also claimed that he had no idea who Emmy was or who had killed her. During the interview, detectives offered Chrysostomo a bottle of water, which he drank and then discarded. After he left the station, they retrieved the bottle from the trash and sent it to the lab for DNA analysis. At that point, investigators still didn't have enough to arrest Chrysostomo, but they continued to build their case. They found a witness who said they had seen Chrysostomo trying to sell a used BlackBerry torch on February 5th, the same model as Emmy's missing cell phone. They also played Emmy's 911 call for Joanne Castro, Chrysostomo's former partner of 17 years, and she confirmed that the male voice on the call belonged to her ex. Of course, investigators knew that they couldn't just rely on Joanne's word, so they played the 911 recordings for 25 different detectives in the Department of Public Safety. Individually, half of those detectives identified the male voice as belonging to Joseph Chrysostomo, whom they had become very familiar with over the years. While not the strongest piece of evidence, it did confirm to investigators that they were on the right track. Federal agents managed to track down the green sedan rented by Annie and seized it for forensic analysis. Although the car had since been cleaned, analysts were able to find hair and fibers in the front and back of the vehicle. The hair found in the passenger seat showed the same microscopic characteristics as Emmy's hair, and the black cotton fibers found in the driver's seat were microscopically similar to the black leggings used to strangle her. There were also fibers found on the bottom of Emmy's shoes that matched the fabric from the interior of the vehicle. The FBI forensic lab also analyzed the footprint impressions taken at the crime scene. According to their experts, the impressions left at the scene had a high level of association to Chrysostomo's feet, which were described as being shaped like hockey sticks. Although the prints couldn't be matched to his feet with 100% certainty, Chrysostomo couldn't be excluded from the results. Perhaps the most significant piece of evidence was the DNA taken from Emmy's rape kit. 
It was tested against Chrysostomo's DNA, as well as that of her boyfriend Taj and two other persons of interest. Forensic analysts at the FBI concluded that Joseph Chrysostomo was likely the major contributor of the DNA with a certainty of 1 in 960 million. After a year of investigation, the Department of Public Safety was finally able to obtain an arrest warrant for Joseph Chrysostomo. At trial, all of the evidence, combined with eyewitness statements and expert testimony, proved to be insurmountable for the defense. On April 24, 2014, the jury unanimously found Joseph Chrysostomo guilty of first-degree murder, kidnapping, sexual assault, and robbery. He was sentenced to life in prison. In the years since, Chrysostomo has appealed his conviction, but in 2018, the court upheld the decision and he remains in prison. Emmy Romero's family has not forgotten her, and we shouldn't either. She was a kind-hearted, gentle woman who loved her children and worked hard to support her family. She did not deserve her fate. In the words of prosecutor Margot brown Battowie, Emmy was, quote, at the wrong place, in the wrong car, at the wrong time. A simple mistake led to her death at the hands of a violent criminal, one who should have been behind bars rather than roaming the streets of Saipan, looking for someone to kill. We can only take solace in the fact that her killer is behind bars. Please share Emmy's story. She deserves to be remembered. Thank you for listening to Bite-Sized Crime. This episode was written, researched, and edited by me, Joy Scaglion. Theme music is by Arts Guitars. For episode transcripts, pictures, and sources, please visit bitesizedcrimepod.com. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram at bitesizedcrimepod. If you have a suggestion for a case I should cover, please email me at bitesizedcrimepod at gmail.com. And be sure to subscribe and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. Podcast Network.